You know, when I, when I was growing up as a kid, uh, there, were two, there were two primary ways to annoy my sister, who's two years older than me. Well, there's a lot, but there, there was two ways to annoy my sister or to annoy other, other friends or other kids. And, and the interesting thing about these two ways of annoying other people is that they're, they're actually the exact opposite of each other. So on one hand, one of the most annoying things that kids would do, and I don't know if they still do it or not, is when they mimic or repeat everything you do back to you. You know, and so on one hand, I could annoy my sister by repeating everything she said, every word, every sigh, every facial expression, just really, really annoying with, with, with my uh, repetition, my mimicking. But the other way that you could annoy someone you could, is you could give them the silent treatment. And I, I, I hated this. This was the worst. The silent treatment is when your friend or your sibling or your family member, they will not speak to you. So it's the opposite. On one hand, they're saying everything you're saying. On the other hand, they're saying nothing. It's the silent treatment, and it's terrible. At the end of the Old Testament, when the Old Testament ends, the book of Malachi, the final prophet of the Old Testament, we enter into 400 years of silence. God is essentially giving his people for 400 years the silent treatment, not saying anything. And when the Old Testament ends, the, the nation of Israel has been brought back out of exile. They're back in the land of Palestine, but nothing is the same as it used to be. The glory days under kings named David and Solomon. They're, they're back in their land, but they're not really free. They're under the domination of the great uh, world power of the day, Persia. And even though the temple has been rebuilt and the walls have been rebuilt in Jerusalem, they actually wept when they saw it because they realized this is nothing like it used to be. It was smaller. It, it wasn't as glorious as the one that had been built by Solomon. And then we encounter 400 years of silence. And when you open up the gospel of Luke, you find yourself in an entirely different world than the world when Malachi was writing. Here's what's happened. The entire, the center of power in the universe has shifted from the east to the west. If you're, if you're a student of history, you know that the power shifts from Babylon to Persia to Greek or to Greece. And now when you open up the book of Luke, who has the power? It's Rome. The Romans have the power. Palestine is still a puppet state. The Jews have still not regained their sovereignty. There's a king on the throne, but the, the greatest insult to the Jewish people is this. The king on the throne, whose name is Herod, he's not a descendant of Jacob. He's a descendant of Esau. And during the 400 years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Luke, the Jews have gone through times of pressure. They've had rebellions. They've tried to reestablish themselves, and they've failed. And just about when Luke begins, the Jewish people have given up hope. And there's this growing sense amongst the Israelites that the only hope they have left is the coming of the Messiah. This Messiah that the prophets promised and spoke about, that's what they're holding on to. And God chooses to end 400 years of silence in Luke chapter 1 in a very unexpected way. He does it with two birth announcements. Now, birth announcements is a big deal nowadays, right? There's, there's really elaborate ways that people, there's a lot of money in the industry now. How do you announce that you're pregnant? But beyond that, how do you announce the gender? Anyone ever been a part of a gender reveal party? Those, those are big deals now, big deals. They, they, they cut into a cake and the inside of the cake is either blue or pink or they burst a balloon. I read about a story somewhere in the Southwest in Arizona, New Mexico, where they did some sort of pyrotechnic thing that ended up starting wildfires like all over the place and was burned and burned and burned for weeks and weeks and weeks. 
Terrible. Bad idea. Don't, don't do it. Just say boy or girl, really. It's a lot simpler. <laughs> Just say it. God breaks the silence with two birth announcements. And this morning, you might be wondering, well, why look at these? Why take the time to look at these two accounts? What's so important about them? After all, aren't they just birth announcements? And and here's what I think. If God, who knows all things, chooses to break 400 years of silence with this, we should pay attention to it. We should look very carefully and closely at it. What we're going to do this morning is a little bit different. There's two birth announcements, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist and the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ. But when you study them side by side in chapter one, they each follow the same basic pattern. There's eight steps or eight bits of information that we need to know from each birth announcement. So what I want to do, and I hope this is helpful, and I hope this makes sense. I'm a little actually nervous about this, but we're going to go through both stories uh, parallel next to each other. We're going to look at both of them, and we're going to look at different components. So here's, this is hopefully going to help you. If you're listening on podcast, you can't see this, uh, but we'll provide a link in the podcast description so you can download this graphic. But we're going to go through each of these eight, the person, the day, the visitor, the response, the news, the question, the sign, the result. Don't get nervous. Some of them are very, very quick. We won't be here too long. Let's start with the person. All right. When we look at the person, the two people that the birth announcements were made to, we see major differences between them, but one similarity. And the first person is this. His name is Zachariah. And Zachariah is a priest. Uh, he has a wife who also is descendant of Aaron and the Levite. So she's also in the line of priests, but she doesn't serve as a priest because only the men did. And this is what the Bible says in Luke chapter one, verse six. It says, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they have no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. There's two things I want you to notice about Zechariah. First, he's a direct descendant of Levi, and so is his wife. Now, at this point in the history of Israel, neither one of those things actually is necessary. In the Old Testament, you had to be a direct descendant of Levi in order to serve as a priest. But things have been so diluted and so sort of perverted at this point that the priest position was something you could sort of buy your way into it had become very political. So there were non-Levites serving as priests in the day of Jesus, which was in violation of Old Testament law. But Zechariah was not one of those. He was a descendant of Levite, and so was Elizabeth. And here's the other thing I want you to notice about Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They love and they serve God. They're faithful to God. It says that they walked blamelessly in all of his commandments. Doesn't mean they were perfect. Nobody's perfect. But it means that their hearts honored God. But here's the other thing we learn about them. They're old and they're barren. And those two realities, that they've obeyed and honored God with their lives, and that they're old and they're barren, it created a real theological tension, a real pain point in their lives. Because there was a mindset back then that if you were faithful to God, he would bless you with children. And so people would look at Elizabeth and Zechariah and they would judge them. And they would say, you don't have children. You're barren because there's something in your life that is wrong. But the scriptures make it clear that these people honored God. So we get to this point where there's this tension. In the other story, we meet a young lady. She's very different from Zechariah. Her name's Mary. Mary is a virgin who's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Joseph was from the house of David. Betrothed meant this. This is different than today. Today, you get engaged to be married. You can break off an engagement without any sort of legal involvement. 
But back then, being betrothed or being engaged was, the only way you could get out of being betrothed was a legal divorce. So they weren't married, they were engaged, but it was a more serious thing back then. She's engaged to a man who is a descendant of King David. And here's something that we know from history about Mary, she's young. She's a lot younger than you're probably thinking. Mary was probably anywhere from 12 to 14 years old uh, when she was engaged to be married. So they're very different. You have Zechariah, this old man, this established man, this priest who's married. And then you have young Mary, who's a teenager, who's betrothed to be married. His life is behind him. Her life is before her. But the one thing they have in common is this. They've both found favor in God's eyes. He's chosen both of them. That's the person. All right, let's talk about the day. The day. There's some days in our lives when we can see the change coming, right? When you get engaged to be married and you put that wedding date on your calendar, you can see it coming. You know that's going to be a really important day in your lives. But how many of you have learned that some days in your life end up being very important and you don't realize they're going to be important when you wake up that morning? What we have here is Zachariah knows this is going to be an important day for him, but Mary doesn't realize it's going to be an important day for her. And let me explain what we learned in this story about Zechariah. Zechariah is one of 8,000 priests. So there's 8,000 priests in the nation of Israel at this point. And they, these 8,000 priests are broken into 24 smaller groups of about 300 priests per group. And each group of priests would be called to serve in Jerusalem in the temple for two weeks uh, two weeks in the spring, two weeks in the fall. They weren't consecutive two weeks. They were split up. So 48 of those weeks were served by these priests. And then the other weeks, which were the big holidays, like the Passover, everybody showed up and served. And so Zechariah, this is one of his two weeks. He's there. And then once the 300 priests get to Jerusalem, they're sort of just ready to serve, but they don't all serve every day. Every day they do this thing called casting lots, which maybe an equivalent for us is like rolling dice or something. And so they cast lots, and 56 of the 300 are chosen to serve that day. And each lot represents a specific way that that person was going to serve. And on this day, the lot that fell to Zacharias, so let's think about this, the sovereignty of God, it happened to be his week. He happened to be chosen for that day. And the lot that fell to him was the incense lot. And the incense lot was the most important lot of them all. This was going to be the most important day of his life. Many priests never had the privilege of serving in the role that he served on this day. And according to ancient writings, once you did it, you could never do it again. It was that significant that once your name was chosen to serve as the incense person, you can never do it again. And here's why it was so significant. While all the priests were doing other things around the temple, Zechariah walked into the holy place that day. Now, in the temple structure, there was an outer court, there's an inner court, there's the holy place, there's the holy of holies. And only one priest went into the holy of holies one day a year to make atonement for sins. But right outside of that was the holy place. And Zechariah would have walked in there that day with several other priests, but he also would have been left alone at some point. And he would have offered the incense when he was given the sign. And the incense went up as the prayers around the temple went up. So for Zechariah, this is not just another day. This is like the crowning achievement of his, of his life. This is a career-making day. And one of the commentaries I read described it this way. He said, when Zechariah walked in, here's what he would have seen. Imagine this. Before him rose the rich embroidered curtain of the Holy of Holies, which he couldn't go past. 
resplendent with cherubim, angels, woven in scarlet, purple, and gold. He's standing there, and to his left is the table of showbread. Directly in front of him was the horned golden altar of incense where he was going to make his offering. And to his right stood the golden candlestick. Zechariah would have purified the altar and he would have joyfully waited for the signal to offer the incense so that, as it were, that the sacrifices went up to God wrapped up in sweet incense of prayer. So Zechariah, like, this is a big, big day for him. What about Mary? For Mary, this is, as far as we know, this is nothing special. This is just another day, a normal day for her. Mary's announcement comes six months after Zechariah's announcement. So we know it's six months later. We know that she's probably getting ready, preparing for her wedding, but that's all we know. So what does this mean? Zechariah was sure that this would be one of the most important days of his life. He had no clue how right he was. And Mary was sure this would be one of the most just normal days of her life. And she had no clue how wrong she was. So the person, the day, now let's talk about the visitor. And it's the visitor that makes the day turn around. And uh, Zechariah standing there, he's getting ready to, make, uh, to offer up the incense. And it says in verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar. So imagine Zechariah's in there, he's praying, he opens his eyes, he looks over, and there's an angel standing there. And we learn later that his name is Gabriel. And then the passage that Leanne read for us this morning, chapter 1, verse 26, says this, in the sixth month, six months after the story of Zechariah, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And so the visitor is the same, Gabriel. Gabriel makes the birth announcement to Zechariah. Gabriel makes the birth announcement to Mary. What a cool job. Gabriel has, huh? That's that's a pretty cool thing for Gabriel who stands in the presence of God to come and get to declare the coming of our Savior. That's the visitor. What about the response? And the response that we see in Zechariah and Mary, even though they're very different people, they both respond the same. They basically freak out. They are afraid. Now, before we kind of laugh at them, I think you and I would do the same. If we're just standing there minding our own business and we look over and there's a huge angel standing right there and glowing and whatever an angel might look like, I don't think he looked like Clarence from the Christmas movie. I think he probably looked, looked a little bit more impressive than that. You look over and you see the angel standing there, right? It, it, you'd be pretty, you'd be, some of you would be trying to Instagram it, trying to take pictures of it and put it, put it on your Instagram story real quick. And, uh, well, we see here that it says, I love this, the Bible sometimes is a little subtle in the way it says things, but it says, Zechariah was troubled, <laughs> troubled when he saw him, you think? And fear fell upon him. Now remember, 400 years of silence. They don't know a single person or a grandparent or a great-grandparent or really an ancestor. They don't know anybody who's had an encounter with God this way. And then Mary it also says the same word. She was greatly troubled at the saying that she was a lot of fear. In fact, in Mary's story, the, the, the Greek word they're troubled is actually a little bit more emphasized than in Zechariah's story, which makes sense. For Zechariah, he's a little older. He's been around the things of God and he's actually in the holy place. So although it was shocking to see an angel, that's not maybe quite as shocking as just minding your own business, sweeping the floor in your house, and all of a sudden there's an angel. Now let's look at the news, or I think on your handout it might say the announcement. There's a couple major similarities in these two birth, announce, birth announcements. The main ones are this. They both say you're going to have a son, and here is his name, 
okay? You don't get to choose. You don't get to choose. For some of you, that would be easier, right? It would cause a lot of uh, peace in your home as you try to pick the name. Anybody struggle picking the name of a child? Anyone else? Just me? Wow, you guys are doing pretty good. Aaron and I, uh, we have three little girls, and we had two boy names picked out before we had any kids, doesn't God have a sense of humor? We're like Elijah Thomas and Jude Raymond. Like we knew those were our dad's middle names or first names. We were going to make them our middle names. We're like, we got it. And then we had three girls. And every single time we had some um, engaging conversations uh, about the name, the name of our girls. Picking the name is a big deal. It's, it's a really important thing. And in this case, Zachariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, they didn't get to pick the names. God picked the names. And he said, you're going to have a son and his name's going to be John. And they said to Mary, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Jesus. And let's actually look at this. Let's read this together, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 1. It'll be on the screen for you. It's on page probably 3 of your little white booklet, verse 13. It says this, But the angel said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, I want to pause for a second and, sh- and, and look at something. He said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Zechariah is in the holy place. He's making prayers. He's offering prayers. And in the Greek, that means the prayer you just offered. He's not talking about the prayers you've prayed your whole life. He's saying the prayer you just offered. Now, what was Zechariah praying for in the holy place? And I want to suggest to you, he was not praying for a son for two very clear reasons. Number one, he didn't even believe it once he was told he was going to have a son. He thought it was impossible. He wasn't praying for a son. He thought those days had passed him and Elizabeth by. But the other reason he wasn't praying for a son is because he had a very specific responsibility that day when he stood in the holy place. And his responsibility was this, to pray for the redemption of Israel. And so when the angel says, Zechariah, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him, call his name John. That meant something really significant. And what it meant was the birth of John is going to be instrumental in the redemption of Israel. So God's saying, you're praying for the redemption of Israel. Well, guess what? I got good news. Your prayer has been answered. John the Baptist is coming. Verse 14, the angel goes on to say, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. We'll see that's fulfilled later. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What do we learn here about John? We learn a couple things. We learn that he's going to bring joy and gladness because he's part of the good news of the gospel. And when we hear the good news of who Jesus is, it always results in joy and gladness. We learn that John is going to be great in the Lord's eyes, not in everyone's eyes. We'll learn later that John was a bit of a weirdo, a little weird, and uh, he wasn't great in the eyes of this world. He was easily dismissible and forgotten, but in the Lord's eyes, he's great. And let me just pause and say, for some of you, you might feel like you're a little weirdo. <laughs> Don't raise your hand. You might, you, might, you might feel like you're easily dismissible. You're forgettable. Nobody notices you. No one pays attention to you. I want to say to you that there's people, I think, all over the world that are great in the Lord's eyes that are not great in anyone else's eyes. Their names will never be in lights. 
They'll never be famous. They'll never be known, but they can be great. You can be great in the Lord's eyes. John was set apart. He wasn't to drink. Now, this is not quite the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow also include no cutting of the hair and a few other things. This is just something, really, what most commentators think is this is a juxtaposition between being filled with wine versus filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the next thing he says is that, that John is going to be filled with the Spirit even in his mother's womb. That's pretty cool. That actually tells us a little bit, it tells us something about how God views preborn babies. He's going to fill John with his Holy Spirit while John is still in his mother's womb. He says, you're going to be connected to Elijah, which means John's work is in line with the prophets of the Old Testament. It's a continued, connected work. God's not necessarily starting something brand new. He is completing and fulfilling what he's always been doing. And then John's message is going to be turn, return, repent, come back. And I love it says at the very end, he's going to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. He's preparing the people for someone else. John's the appetizer. Jesus is the main course. Or for those of you that just like dessert, Jesus is the main course and the dessert. He's it all, right? But John's preparing the way. Now let's look at the news to Mary. In verse 28, it says, Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Okay, so what do we learn about Jesus? We learn that it says that Jesus is going to be great, not just in the Lord's eyes, but Jesus is just going to be great. He's going to be great. He's going to be the son of God. He's connected to the throne of his father, David, which speaks of continuation and fulfillment that we need a true and better king. David was a great king, but Jesus is the uh, real king. And then also we see that Jesus' kingdom will reign for, he will reign forever and his kingdom will not end. That sets Jesus apart from all other kings whose kingdoms do end. Jesus never will. So that's the news. What about the question? At this point, if you're anything like Zechariah and Mary, you would have had some questions. And let's look at their questions because the questions sound the same, but they're actually very different. Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now listen, right there is a lot of wisdom, man. You notice the difference, the way he talked about himself and his wife? He is very positive with his wife. My wife is advanced in years. That's a very kind way of saying it. But I'm an old man. <laughs> a lot of wisdom. Zachariah was wise. She's advanced in years. I'm old. Mary asked this question. How will this be since I'm a virgin? Now they kind of sound the same, don't they? But we actually, when you look close, you realize they're very different. Here's what Zechariah is saying. Zechariah is basically saying, give me a sign. I don't believe. It's a, it's a question of doubt. He's saying, I don't, I don't know how this can happen because we're older. It's not a physical impossibility. It's a physical improbability, right? But with Mary, what is she facing? She's facing a biological, physical impossibility. A woman who has not been with a man is now with child. And so she's simply saying, Help me understand. I'm a virgin. How is this going to happen? And so Zachariah's question is from a place of doubt. Mary's question is looking for clarity and information. 
And then they get this sign. They both get a sign, and it's very different. And it says, the, the angel says to him, and I love this, in verse 19, after Zechariah says, how shall I know? I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel says to him, I am Gabriel. He's like, bro, do you know who I am? <laughs> like, and then he goes on to say, I stand in the presence of God. Like, Zechariah. Really. This actually reminds me, there's this iconic scene. How many of you are familiar with the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis book, movie, you've probably seen. Uh, Aslan, the lion, he tells the white witch that he will give his life in place of the deserving traitor, Edmund. I'll take Edmund's place. And uh, after she agrees to it, he turns to the people gathered, including Edmund's brothers or brother and sisters, and he says, she has renounced her claim on the son of Adam's blood. He's saying, Edmund is free. Now, they don't realize yet what it's going to cost for Edmund to be free. And so they all start cheering. And then the white witch runs after him, and she goes, how do I know, how do I know your promise will be kept? And I love this scene, because he doesn't even give her an answer. He just roars. He just roars at her, and that's enough. And I feel like that's kind of what Gabriel is doing here. How, how shall I know this? And he just roars. He's like, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And he says, all right, if you need a sign, here's your sign. You will be mute until this baby is born. So it's kind of funny, because Zechariah gets his sign, but it's maybe not the sign that he would have wanted. He says, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now let's look at the response that Mary gets from the angel when she asks. It says in verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, here's a sign. Mary didn't know this yet. Elizabeth has been keeping it secret. For five months, she's kept herself in seclusion. And this is six months. Mary doesn't know. Behold your relative Elizabeth. They might've been cousins. They might've been sisters. We don't really know for sure. In her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. I want you to notice a couple of things. When he says that the power of the Most High will overshadow you, that's a word that actually recalls a story in Exodus 40 when they built the tabernacle and a divine cloud overshadowed the tabernacle. When all the work of the tabernacle where God dwelt had been completed, God overshadowed it and then he infused it with his presence and his glory. And what this means is that the divine presence or the divine cloud that had established the presence of God in a place in Exodus was now going to overshadow Mary and it was going to establish the very presence of God now, not in a place, but in a person in Jesus Christ. And I love this. He says, here's the sign. Elizabeth, she was called barren, which means this was her identity. This is how people talked about her. When people thought about Elizabeth, they either judged her or they, they, they pitied her. But they thought of her as barren. They thought of her as useless. They thought of her as life has passed her by. But now she is pregnant. She's six months pregnant with John. And then she conclu- the angel concludes by saying this, for nothing will be impossible with God. I want to encourage your hearts this morning that when God is involved, when God speaks, when God's at work, 
when God has his plan and his purpose in motion, nothing is impossible for God. Don't get hung up on the details. If he's spoken to you through his word, through his written word, if he's spoken into your life through the gift of another, hold on to that and believe that nothing will be impossible. It may look impossible to you. You may look at that person who's far from God. You may look at that health situation. You may look at that situation at work. You may look at that need for reconciliation and you may think there's no possible earthly way and you're right. There's no possible earthly way. But when God gets involved, nothing will be impossible for God. And then lastly, we see the result. The people are waiting for Zechariah. So this actually slows him down. He's in there. He's supposed to offer incense. And you know what most of the people probably thought? They actually probably thought he was struck dead. Like they thought, well, see, this proves it. They're barren. He must be living in sin. He went into the holy place. It's taken him forever to get out. He must have died in the very presence of God. But he comes out. And when he comes out, he's unable to speak to them. And they realize that he had a vision in the temple. He goes home with Elizabeth, they conceive. And look at what Elizabeth says in verse 25. She says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The Lord taking away her approach. And then let's look at Mary's response, the result. Verse 38, and Mary said, after all this, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You know what's interesting to me about Elizabeth and Mary? Very different. But for Elizabeth, her reproach, reproach is another word for shame, for feeling like you're judged, like you're on the outside. Her reproach was coming to an end. But what about Mary? Her reproach was just beginning, right? The birth of John the Baptist meant no more reproach for Elizabeth. But the birth of Jesus meant shame and scandal and reproach for Mary. What do we learn in these birth announcements? And I want to make two points, and then we'll finish, and we're going to pray together. We learn two really important things. We learn that God chooses all kinds, and we learn that God chooses all times. All kinds and all times. Let's talk first that God chooses all kinds. One of the books I read said this. Here's a comparison between the two. Zachariah and Elizabeth have proper credentials. Mary has none. Zachariah and Elizabeth, their lives are behind them. Mary's life is before her. The first announcement to Zechariah, it takes place in the Jewish temple. It's the center of Jewish religion, culture, and economics. The second one is in rustic Nazareth. So insignificant that Luke, did you notice that Luke had to tell the reader where it was, Nazareth in Galilee, because nobody knew about Nazareth? Zechariah enjoys the status of a priest. Mary is unmarried. The old couple is well-connected and financially secure. Mary is neither. Zechariah and Elizabeth are likened to noble Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament, but Mary is more connected to the outcast and vulnerable Hagar. The mystery of divine grace is at work in spite of and because of these contradictions. And here's what I think we learn when we look at these two stories side by side is that God chooses all kinds. He's not limited in who he chooses. And as we continue to go through the Christmas story this month, you're gonna see that he begins to choose people that nobody else would choose. He chooses outcast nobody shepherds to announce the birth of his son to, right? He chooses outsiders, foreigners, the, the magi to travel to see and bow before the king. God is not limited by who we are. God is not limited by what you've done. 
God is not held captive by your past, by your gifts, by how you view yourself, by how other people view you. God can choose you and use you. You are not too old. You are not too young. You have not been passed by, and you are not stuck waiting for your turn forever. When God decides to choose you, he will put his hand on you, and he can choose you and use you. Nothing you have done in your life up until this point has disqualified you from God choosing you and putting his hand on you. But here's the other thing you have to understand. Nothing you've done up until this point in your life has qualified you. You haven't disqualified yourself and you haven't qualified yourself. It's the grace of God. When he looks at an old couple who think it's all behind us and he says, no, the one who is called barren will give birth to the one who will make the way for Jesus. He looks at this young teenager, Mary, who probably just thinks she's going to have a normal life, never realizes she's going to be chosen to carry the very son of God. God chooses all kinds. And lastly, this morning, God chooses all times, all times. Galatians 4.4, I don't have this on the screen for you, but Galatians 4.4, when Paul's talking about the birth of Jesus, he says this, and when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Paul understood that when the set time had fully come, when it was the right time. For Elizabeth, everybody thought it was too late. I'm sure Elizabeth thought it was too late. And for Mary, I'm sure she thought this is too early. (laughs) This is a little bit ahead of schedule. And some of you may feel this way. You may feel like, God, you are so behind schedule in my life. So far behind schedule. I've been asking you for this. I've been trusting you for this. I've been persevering for this. And you are not, you're behind schedule. And some of you may feel like things are ahead of schedule. There's pressures and burdens and problems that you feel like, I shouldn't have to bear these yet. I I need more time. I'm not prepared for what God's asking me to walk through. As God gives us grace, we learn to trust his timing. And here's what I believe that if we could see God's perspective and if we could understand God's purposes, we would not question his timing. We would trust his timing. Tim Keller says that worry is believing that God won't get it right and bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. Worry is believing that God won't get it right and bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. But God chooses all kinds and God chooses all times And then these stories come together, the two birth announcements. And let's read this as we close. Verse 39, it says, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She probably wanted to get away from Nazareth because it wasn't going to be very good once people realized that she was with child. And she entered the house of Zechariah and she greeted Elizabeth. So here they come together, Mary and Elizabeth, the two birth announcements come together. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Two things come true 
that Gabriel spoke when Mary and Elizabeth come together. John leaps with joy, meaning that he's filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. But Mary comes into a room and she hears and experiences a blessing instead of a curse. I'm sure when people found she was with child, they didn't believe her story. Who would? They thought she had stepped out on Joseph. She had done something wrong, judged by her own family, cursed. And she walks into Elizabeth's home and she's blessed. Says, you have favor. And I love Elizabeth's question once she realized that Mary is carrying the savior of the world. She says, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And the heart of the Christian, especially in the Christmas season, is this. Why has it been granted to me that the Lord would come to me? Why has it been granted to me that Jesus would come, that he would live the life that he lived, that he would pay the price for my sins? What have I done? Why should it be granted to me? The answer is it's the grace of God. It's the choosing of God because he chooses all kinds and he chooses all times. And just like in Luke chapter one, he's working out his purposes and his plans. Do you know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Which means that the same God who is working out his purposes and plans in Luke chapter one is working out his purposes and plans in you, in your life, in your heart, and in your home. Let's pray together this morning.